0: Bright Spark is a podcast about harm reduction. In this podcast series, we interview people doing the bold, innovative, and necessary work that is saving lives and fighting against the stigmatization of drug users and drug use.
1: My name is Alec Dunn. I'm a nurse, and I've been involved in harm reduction in one way or another for the last six years.
0: And I'm Erin Yankee, a documentarian and radio producer.
1: This is Bright Spark number one On the Ground, an interview with Mary Lou Gagnon.
0: Mary Lou is a nurse based out of Ottawa. She is a professor of nursing, a researcher, an activist, and a master of social media activism. She is also the current president of the Harm Reduction Nurses Association.
1: Mary Lou was a spokesperson for the group Overdose Prevention Ottawa while they ran a public overdose prevention site from August to November of 2017. We'll let Mary Lou explain what that means.
2: Well, I was part of the co-organizing team that put this site together in 7 days <laughs> to be exact so it came together very quickly because it was a direct response to people dying and our government failing to react and put appropriate resources on the ground to make a difference and save lives so we came together very quickly and opened on August 25th what we call an overdose prevention site. We were, at the time, the 26th site to open in Canada, so we weren't the first ones to do that. And they're called usually pop-up sites because they pop up every night and we take the site away when we leave, so it's not a fixed structure. It's meant to be a very simple where you set up. We would set up every day around 4 or 4.30, and then we would operate from 6 to 9 and then take everything down and then start over the next day. And that's what we did for 78 days.
1: So I didn't realize that it was a temporary structure. You would just come in and, and set it up every yeah. day.
2: All over those prevention sites in Canada started this way because they are unsanctioned. So they, they are not sanctioned by Health Canada. They don't have an exemption order under our criminal code. The best way to operate these is usually to target a public space where you know you can be and not be shut down because you're using a public space so that that gives you room to operate. And then you take everything away at the end of the shift and then start over the next day. Uh, we've seen sites where they've just pop up on the weekends or not necessarily every day. And then we've seen the majority of the sites in Canada actually shift to a more permanent structure and move indoors as, you know, overdose prevention sites became recognized for their impact and their, their role that they play in the response. But that wasn't our case. So if you look at the site that's currently still operating in Toronto, for example, the union donated a trailer, so they're now operating in a trailer. So that's usually how it starts is with this temporary structure, and then usually um, if you look at all the other sites that has moved indoors, usually there's a move that happens through donations or government support.
1: So I'd heard about some of the pop-up sites happening in Vancouver and some people were saying they would just go in alleys and set up overhead tents and things like that. The one that you were involved with in Ottawa, it seemed a mix of public political action as being a very um, public space. Is that correct?
2: It's a bit different because I did volunteer at the first one that opened in Vancouver. The downtown east side is very unique. Really, we don't find that a similar space like that in anywhere else in the country. So, you know, it is this very small (laughs) neighborhood where there's a high concentration of people who inject, who use drugs. And, you know, the idea of just setting up in an alley in the context of the crisis that they were in made a lot of sense. It's also easy to take away, also really easy to set up and operate. So it is the structure at its simplest format, I would say. But for us, since we didn't have a downtown east side in Ottawa, we had to find a space that was a public space, in a neighborhood where there's a high concentration of people who use drugs who are at risk of overdosing. And the best choice was the park that we set up in, which still to this day, I don't consider a park, but it's been named a park. There's nothing in the park for kids. There's not um, a bench or garbage can, nothing like that. It's just been named a park, but it was basically a patch of grass that's never really been used, but it was perfectly located for people to access it really easily. So that's where we landed in terms of our location.
1: What kind of group was it that engineered this process? It's an interesting group because a
2: lot of us didn't know each other before. Um, You have people that work in harm reduction. That's their regular job. So they come with extensive background in doing harm reduction work. We had a lot of people with lived experience who are at different stages, like some were in recovery, some were still actively using, but had really this important knowledge of, you know, what's happening on the streets, what are the needs, how do we need to do this, and what would be a peer-centered approach. And then I was the only healthcare provider, well, clinician nurse in the group, and we had social workers also involved, and people from like more of a policy background. So it was an interesting balance, I would say. Everyone was bringing in a their own sets of skills that was much needed (laughs) to create a balanced group. I think that was important. That's how it came to be. And also building on relationships with other people across the country who were doing overdose prevention sites or thinking about it and being in constant communication with them, sharing information, all this background stuff that was happening at the same time too.
1: What was the intention of the group in, in doing this? And doing it for a limited time period in this specific location. I know you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but just yeah. want to address that directly.
2: Uh, so the goal has has always been to save lives first and foremost, and to really keep things as simple as possible for, for, in order to recruit as many volunteers as possible too. So, I mean, we were running this site with more than a hundred volunteers. We're all trained to save. life in the situation of an overdose our goal was to really have an impact on the ground intervene when an overdose happens instead of finding someone who has overdosed in a public bathroom somewhere when sometimes it's too late to to save a life and to make a difference and connect with the community and also push for change at the level of exemptions being granted for supervised injection services but also attention to be brought to the issue which is that people are dying and nothing is being done about it and we were determined to continue for as long as needed and we would still be operating if it wasn't for the fact that there's been no government support and intentional barriers being set up by our mayor to not receive provincial support when it was offered earlier in the month of November. It's really the direct consequences of government lacking the support but also intentionally blocking any potential support coming our way that we were forced to close. And we were the first overdose prevention site in Canada to be forced to close due to the weather, really, because in order to continue to operate, we would have needed a more permanent and safer structure because it was getting very, very cold and very windy uh, and impossible to do our work safely. And the goal of an overdose prevention site for people who may not really understand the difference between an overdose prevention site and a supervised injection site. An overdose prevention site is really overdose first aid. So it is usually done in a simple way where you focus on distribution of sterile equipment, uh, harm reduction supplies, and just be present in case someone overdoses, and if they do overdose, then you have a protocol, a very simple protocol that allows you to intervene and save a life and call 911, give naloxone, and, and provide rescue breeding. But it's as simple as that. A supervised injection site is a very comprehensive healthcare service that usually includes a range of healthcare providers, on-site wound care, you can access detox, you can access counseling, testing, immunization. It's just like a more comprehensive structure that requires an exemption, oversight, trained providers. Uh, more complicated, I would say, to implement, longer and more expensive. Uh, Over those prevention sites work because they're simple, they're accessible to a range of people who are interested in volunteering, and that they have a real impact on the ground. And so our goal was to first and foremost offer the first safer space in the city because when we opened, there was not one option of a safer space in the city. This was the only option. And in the period that we were operating, Two supervised injection sites open, and a third one received an exemption just yesterday in Ottawa. But when we started on August 25th, there was not one operating in the city.
1: There's a little bit of tension that those become too public health-oriented, they're too become too institutional. And do you think that the overdose prevention site, with being inclusive to drug users, their preferences, having them come in and have some leadership in the organization, does that have any influence or pushback on the public healthiness of supervised injection facilities.
2: Yeah, the way that we decided that things would work at our site was very much shaped by people who have used or are currently using drugs and know what would be the ideal service. And the ideal service is a service that is absolutely zero barrier. So that means no none of these rules that tell people how to use or what they can and cannot do and we had the flexibility to do that because we weren't sanctioned. Like we weren't sanctioned by the government. And then, having to follow all their policies and procedures, we had that flexibility and because we had that, we were able to also like just do it and see the impact of that and then, in response to that, put pressure on future existing services to be like, "Well, this is how it should be done, and this is why it works. Let us tell you why this is a barrier and why it needs to be abolished like for example, assisted injection is a big piece that I push for personally, and a lot of us do in the sense that if when you put a policy that prevents people from assisting each other or for nurses or experienced peers to assist people with injection, that means that it creates a a major barrier for people accessing supervised injection sites. That means that you can only access these sites if you're able to inject on your own. Otherwise, you can't come in. And that's a big barrier for people who usually use with a friend, with a partner, who have a disability, who have tremors or really hard access to good veins. Uh it's a big barrier and we've been raising this over time in Canada but, you know, nothing has really changed. But I think we're at a stage now with our experience of overdose prevention sites allowing assisted injection to push for that even more and that's shifting. A lot of the supervised injection sites will now be pushing for changing these policies to allow for some form of assisted injection. But that can only be done because we do it outside the system and we prove that it works and it's really important. So it definitely helps to shape the way the services are organized, the sanctioned ones. And we can call them on things that don't work and things that they shouldn't do, but it definitely helps to be operating outside the system (laughs) and, and to be able to have that flexibility and meet people where they're at, like what do they need today, and not to get caught in what the system expects us to do. We're there for the person. That's what we were focused on, and it worked really well because of that. In the time that we operated, just to give you a sense, we recorded more visits than the four supervised injection sites combined in Montreal. Montreal Open in the spring, but in the four of them that have been operating for six months, combined, like, don't even measure up to our recorded visits in the 78 days that we were operating. How many visits was that? It's close to 4,000. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Since we're meeting next week, we're hoping to start also releasing some of those stats and doing a little bit more of work around, like, for example, Safer inhalation, those were also part of our visits. And right now, there's no place in Ottawa for safer inhalation. We were the only safer space for people who use smoke. So that's still something that's important to us and we want to fight for. So that I'm hoping that more info will come around our numbers very soon. We started with 28, then it went up to 33, then it went up in the 40s. And then by the time we closed, our average visits in three hours was 50.
1: And will you speculate why you think the that was uh, more utilized than the facilities in Montreal?
2: Being in the community just the, the way we were staffed, you know, with volunteers from very different backgrounds, the fact that there were no barriers that people could smoke and inject during their visit, which is something people can do. And just I think it's a lot of like the community building, relationship building, trust building uh, that happen, and that people, you know, relate to it differently. They don't see it as a medical facility. It doesn't disrupt the way that they use their drugs. It doesn't require them to register. Supervised injection services come with a little bit of that structure that sometimes people are, Maybe not ready for that, or that's not how they want to use. So it's just also extra medical kind of uh, way of approaching this may not be the best way. And for us, I think it did help.
0: Were the safe injection sites that are open now? Do you think that was in response to the action you were doing, or were those in the works already? Or
2: <laughs> well, I would say it's a. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily want to say it's entirely because of us, but I would say. because of where we were located and what we did, but if you look at the interim site that initially opened a month after we opened, that was never in the works. They opened under another exemption from another community health center. They had to take down a wall and set up tables. Like They were not prepared for that. This was never, never part of the plan, but it was directly in response to us operating two streets away from public health, and so public health opened an, an interim site, and now they want to make it a permanent site, and then around the time that we closed, a fully sanctioned supervised injection site in the form of a trailer open at Shepherds of Good Hope, the homeless shelter, they were awaiting an exemption for a supervised injection service that would have been integrated indoors and they would have gone through renovations and things like that. But because we put so much pressure, they actually bought a trailer and decided to open it Outside and operate it outside the, their existing structure, while doing all the necessary steps to have that service eventually indoors in their facility, and that's one street away from where we were. So, in like a very small neighborhood where we were present, you have these two supervised injection sites that open within a two-month period, and that's pretty significant.
0: And for those of us that are not in Ottawa, you said it wasn't really a park, but they're calling it a park. But can you describe the site and the neighborhood and the city and the situation of drug use in Ottawa?
2: The reality is that people use drugs all across the city. It's not necessarily this specific neighborhood, but it is known, the neighborhood that we were in, to have a high concentration of people who use drugs and also people who are homeless or struggling with housing are very much concentrated in this area. It is the downtown area. So when you visit Ottawa, it is like the tourist area. It's the byward market that is like a few steps away from Parliament Hill. You have two homeless shelters, one next to the other, where we were locating just to give you an idea in front of our site of that patch of grass that I was describing that is not so much a park. In front of that was an abandoned church that doesn't really serve much purpose. There's actually a bar in the basement of that church We weren't really interrupting uh, much there. And then uh, diagonal to that, there's an abandoned building where a lot of people have been found overdosing and using there just to try to hide. These are streets that are, there are a lot of cars passing by, a lot of cops also in that area. And then you have the shelters nearby and you have a nice row of nice, luxurious condos that have been fairly recently built and a community center also around that area. And it's an area where a lot of cars passing by, uh, very, very close to the very tourist-busy downtown area, but also an area that's been gentrified where there's been a lot of pushback to try to push people out of that neighborhood that have been there for years and years and actually are very much part of that neighborhood. But there's a lot of that happening in that area too.
1: In Portland, historically, there was an area in here called Old Town, which is right next to downtown, which has a lot of homeless social service agencies, which is heavily gentrified, but was also a center for drug culture and buying and selling for years. People talk about doing injection sites here. There's always been that idea floated that that would be the place to be, but mm. there's so much real estate, monetary development pressure. It would be interesting to know how things have changed. I mean, there's definitely not as much drug trafficking in that area as there used to be. Mm. But still, when we do mobile exchange rides, we still have a ton of users down there that come and yeah. utilize services.
2: It's also interesting the perception, right? Because the perception is that it's going to bring more crime or more like drug-related activities or like dispensing of needles outside and things like that. And it's been like you know we have extensive research showing that it's actually quite the opposite. It actually brings people indoors where they can use safely and discard of their. Supplies safely as well. It doesn't increase crime. It doesn't increase regulated activities. A lot of people who access supervised injection services end up connecting with some form of treatment, and it's not always the goal. Like the goal in harm reduction is not to push people towards abstinence or detox. It's really not the goal. If they want to, if they're not there yet, and if that's not a goal for them, that's fine, and we're always going to be there for people, you know, depending on where where they want to go. But if that's where they want to go, that's often a, a place where they can actually access the services they need. So in terms of like someone living in a neighborhood that would be worried about these things, I think it's just education. There needs to be a bit more education around like positive impacts and how people are able to connect with services that are essential for their healthcare and well-being. And that while they're doing that, your neighborhood is also improving so I think sometimes the perception is going to have a negative impact. It's actually been shown time and time again that it's it's quite the opposite. It's important for people to also know, like, you know, when we were doing our overdose prevention site here, it's educating people that we were this 26th city to do it. It helped a lot in terms of providing some background in the same way that supervised injection services have been done across the globe. And we have a lot of data on their impact. So it's just very important for people to know sometimes, like, in their own little universe they may not know that this is being done like everywhere now and so it's important for people to know like this is pretty much in my opinion standard practice now in terms of like the evidence that we have and in terms of clinical practice this is standard harm reduction service in 2017 so it's not exceptional it's not this unique thing this is what we should be doing and it's a no-brainer
1: absolutely it still feels pretty far out of reality here in the in the States. Yeah. But I think that'll change.
2: And I'm saying this, but at the same time it's definitely not easy, I would say. Like there's still oppositions in Montreal. Like Montreal has four supervised injection services and one open near a school and they they're still going through like a lot of community opposition. There's community opposition in Alberta with the sites now being implemented. In Vancouver the reality is they went through that as well. But eventually, the biggest opponents of supervised injection services became the biggest supporters. And we've seen that with our overdose prevention site, too. Just the lack of education, understanding of how things work. And once you see the positive impact, a lot of people just change their minds and understand what we're doing.
1: Going back to the overdose prevention site that you had, you were open from six to nine, three hours a day. What was it like there?
2: Uh, It was fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, been for me like the best group experience that I've ever been part of in terms of the solidarity and big group of volunteers, everyone coming from different backgrounds, all showing up, being dedicated, passionate, really committed to making this work was just the the best experience in terms of just being part of a community and doing this because we care. Having people yeah, from different backgrounds really helped to mix it up and bring different personalities and strengths. So that was really interesting in terms of like the group dynamic. And I would say just in terms of being there almost every night myself as a nurse um, was definitely a good feeling to be able to provide the service, which, you know, up to this point, people had not experienced in the city. So it was really interesting to see them get used to the idea of you're going to have people around you that are just there in case something happens and it's safe to use here it's safe to use the way that you normally use so you don't have to change so if you use with a friend if you usually like split your drug if you do assisted injection so if you assist each other you can do that here we're not about rules and telling people what to do what not to do we're just here to be supportive and if something happens we're gonna save your life people like hearing the comments of people how they would react to the idea of being able to use in a safe space and why they were coming was really interesting. Uh, People told us that they felt safe, not just safe from the risk of overdosing, which they're very aware of. And there's very little you can do when you don't have a place to go to not use alone, like you're constantly being pushed to use and hide and use alone somewhere really dark or in a public bathroom where no one can check on you. And to be in that environment just to feel safer in that way, but also being able to make different decisions, for example, by not using as much or cutting like the amount that you want to do in half and just doing like a test, testing your drug for fentanyl because we had fentanyl strips, which are not perfect. But at least it's one thing that we had on site and just be able to take your time, not feeling rushed, not feeling like stress really impacted people. And I think we did manage to do a lot of overdose prevention and maybe not as much intervention because we're doing so much prevention by letting people use the way that they normally use. Also, people felt safe in terms of safe from the risk of being arrested and also the dangers that comes with living and using on the streets. Sometimes you can be for example, if you're somnolent, and that happens a lot. So people just felt like overall safer in so many different ways. I would say for me, the highlight was just the opportunity to connect with people where they're at. And that's usually a sentence that we use in the healthcare settings. You know, we always say this, like harm reduction is meeting people where they're at you're literally doing it. You're outside. You're in a tent. Like, you're connecting with people. You're not wearing a lab coat. You're not wearing a name tag. You're just dressed in your own clothes. You're in outdoors in the neighborhood connecting with people. You're not presenting with a title and, like, you know, interacting with people that way. Um, You're just human-to-human connection, interesting discussion. People just felt free to talk about whatever they wanted, ask questions. It just felt like everyone was on the same level, and it had a powerful impact on a lot of people. And not just in terms of preventing overdoses and saving lives if people overdose, but just in terms of people feeling like there's this whole group of people who care about us and who show up every night and connecting on a human level had a significant impact on people and their desire to take care of themselves. Still, to this day, I mean... I saw some of our regular guests when was it Sunday evening because I visited the supervised injection site that recently opened and I saw some of them and still that connection is still there. It's just so special to have the privilege of doing that every night and really connect was uh, for me the most powerful thing.
0: Can you talk about your relationship with the police at the site? We had
2: a really strong police liaison person on our co-organizing team, so she, I would say, played a huge role in making sure that there was constant communication. We didn't really experience any repercussions really or any attempts to shut us down or to scare us or anything to close us or whatever. It's just it never happened really. There was some interesting collaboration in terms of uh, even um, I think it was the second or third week that we were operating realizing that the Police officers in that area often use the parking lot next to our site to write their reports and take breaks and then realizing, like, well, we don't necessarily want police presence around our site because it's not helping. And they moved. They agreed to move. And we also heard of uh, guests that would say that the cops referred them to the site. But at the same time as this was happening on our end, not really being experiencing too much um, From the cops, we knew that the cops were doing drug sweeps in the area, in the same area, and targeting our guests, basically, whether it's arresting people, so we would see guests just suddenly disappear, or also um, stopping people on the street and confiscating their drugs and saying it's for your own good, and then leaving them with no drugs like on the street thinking that that's helpful when we know that it's actually very harmful to do that. We were hearing, like, these things happening and seeing the impacts of that, but for on our end, like, we never experienced anything from the police during our activities.
1: I still want to try and get, like, a picture of what it was like there. So what was the three hours? What did it look like or feel like to be there?
2: It really depended where you were. So we had a greeter table, and at the greeter table we had these fantastic volunteers. We had food every, every day. There wasn't one day where we didn't have snacks, drinks, food, and homemade food for all the volunteers, and then also we would give the food to our guests as well. And we had at the greeter table also harm reduction supplies that people could just come and take... And then if they were to come inside, they had two options. They had a smaller tent that was our smoking tent where people could do safer inhalation. And that's basically a table with chairs and the supplies and just like a very chill vibe because the goal of a smoking tent especially when people smoke stimulants like is to keep things really as chill as possible that's how i would describe it and then we had a tent that was uh, double the capacity of the smoking tent where we had tables and L shapes that would offer five spots for people to inject at the same time and in that tent we would have a team of three volunteers at all time each person had a specific role for 3 hours so we had a person that the role was to call 911 and connect with the paramedics and whoever showed up because sometimes they send firefighters and, and cops and, like, to be that liaison person between the team intervening and the help that's being called. And then you had one person who was responsible for rescue breeding and one person was responsible for Naloxone administration. Those teams were trained, experienced. There was a good balance of skills, and they were already ready to intervene if something happens. And the smoking tent did not require the same level in terms of, like, the team. It was only one volunteer who's standing outside the tent, basically, or sitting, keeping an eye on things and monitoring, like, how many visits and things like that. That kind of gives you a sense of... The layout and where people would go, and people injecting could just stick around as long as needed. We were doing, like I mentioned before, a lot of monitoring and stimulation. So people who were pretty somnolent but still arousable and easily, you know, would easily follow command, like open your eyes and sit up and take some deep breaths. We had oxygen saturation monitors that we could put on their fingers. These are situations where you really don't want to use naloxone. It's not really not indicated. But, you know, unless you have the capacity to monitor people, sometimes, like, these people can be administered naloxone because they look somnolent. But we were really careful with administering it when required. Absolutely necessary situation. But in other situations, we were monitoring people up to 90 minutes in that tent because of the understanding of wanting to use a harm reduction approach to naloxone administration because naloxone is not the best. So we did a lot of that.
1: How frequently were you encountering overdoses that required naloxone? Uh, well that's
2: that's the interesting question because it depends how you define it. And as a an nurse, like I'm in, I'm really interested now after this experience and from doing this work also for the past years, like in having conversations with other people, like in how we define overdoses. I think for a lot of people that we intervene in terms of like stimulation and monitoring, these, the same people in in an alley, for example, on their own would have probably overdosed. It's interesting. Like do we define an overdose when the person stops breathing? If that's the case, we intervene five times. If we categorize that differently, then it gives us like a different picture. Um, I think we have to be open to maybe revising a little bit of how we define an overdose, just because when you do, that work where you're there when the person is using, you catch them really quickly. So they don't get to really, a lot of them don't get to fully overdose, I would say. They're just kind of on their way out and you can catch them. Of course, when you don't have that safer space and people are being forced to use alone or use, and then when they're being found, like, of course, they're in full overdose because no one could catch them when they were falling. But we can, because we do this work, like when people inject. So it's, really hard to just let them unless like it's it's a definite overdose like where the person is used like too much or something they didn't know and that is really powerful then you know because it's just they stop breathing and they're unconscious but there's a lot of people I would say that if they were to be on their own on the street and to be found like minutes into this somnolent phase like their drowsy phase like they would be considered is a full overdose. So I don't know if, if it's a good answer, but I think it's just being honest that I think we have to take a good look at how we define it. The more work you do when people inject right in front of you, the more this way of categorizing does not work. And we've also been seeing a rise in Canada of what we call atypical overdoses, and we we saw two of those overdoses at our site. Where it's people presenting not with the classic where the body is limp and the person just looks like they're sleeping, and they stop breathing. It's it's people who present with seizures or like fluctuating heart rates or um, flailing limbs or muscle rigidity with chest wall rigidity, and you can't even open their airways. Really hard to manage an overdose like that. Airway management and rescue breathing is essential, and when you can't do it. You only need a few minutes for that person to go into cardiac arrest. So it really creates these complex overdoses to manage. And we're seeing a lot more of these now. Things are really shifting here. And because of Vancouver being so good at sharing this knowledge, like we were at least minimally prepared for that. But it it is a challenge. It makes overdose response really harder.
1: Did you have a protocol when someone went into overdose where they were apneic or not breathing that you always called EMTs?
2: Well, we had a protocol with basically three situations of someone who's uh, drowsy, like on the nod, but still able to follow command and respond when you're talking to them or like take deep breaths and things like that. So that wouldn't be a 911 situation. The two other scenarios would be 911 situations, meaning someone who's really breathing slowly but not responding to what you're saying and their breeding is so slow that it's dangerous or someone stops breeding. So we've been exchanging a lot of information across overdose prevention sites in Canada in terms of how to build these protocols, and it's pretty standard now. We use these categories, and it works pretty well. You do have to think about the fact that the people who volunteer at these sites are can be peers, they can be social workers, harm reduction workers, people from the community with no healthcare background. We have to keep it very, I would say, easy to distinguish and call for help as soon as the situation requires that. You're not equipped to take on, like, these really complex situations.
1: What did you learn individually or collectively while running uh, this overdose prevention site? Um, And is there anything that surprised you while doing it?
2: What we've learned is that it works, and to make a difference, you don't need... It's not that complicated. So in terms of, like, this overdose crisis that we're facing in Canada, the solutions are not complicated, and they're not expensive that's what we know for a fact. And so this has made it even harder. Not that I really, I was never really receptive to these kind of like responses from government that, you know, we're planning, we're working, blah, blah, blah. But this experience has made me even (laughs) less understanding of like these kind of responses that we need to do this or we need this kind of approval. We need to, it's just like, no, we know what to do. We know what works. We have a ton of scientific evidence and Canada is like the leader in producing research On safer consumption spaces. So it's like we have a ton of research to support this. It is ethically the right thing to do. It is not expensive. You just have to do it and be courageous. And so I think this has proven that, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And we need to keep the pressure. And when we keep the pressure, when we push, it works. So we have to keep doing that. And that's the history of harm reduction. If it wasn't for people who did, like, underground needle exchange, needle exchange would not be a standard now. I you know, if it wasn't for... Uh, people who didn't supervise injection services before they were even in the mainstream, you know, like this, just introducing the idea and then insight if it wasn't for insight and insight going to the Supreme Court of Canada to really make this part of our standard thing that we do here just takes these groups of people who push boundaries and I think overdose prevention sites have play and will continue to play a role to show people that it really isn't complicated. You can make a real difference and you just got to do it and you can't wait like 12 years to do all the paperwork, get your exemption, go through renovations while people are dying. We could be doing so much more on the ground. We've definitely learned that. We've seen it. We know it works. And it has given us a lot of ammunition, I would say, that when we attend meetings or call for things, like we know what we're talking about. And we've seen it from our own eyes. We've done it. So it really um, allows us to to be really blunt because we know it works and we've done it. So it has helped a lot in that way. We also have seen that mixing healthcare providers, harm reduction workers, and peers working together works exceptionally well. A lot of our teams were, you know, like nurses and peers and like a harm reduction worker in the injection tent, and it works really, really well. What's been, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's just Ottawa is a particularly difficult city to do harm reduction work in. It is a government city where I would say the majority of people work in jobs where they have to follow very strict protocols and are very rule oriented so when we were comparing our experience with Toronto for example they weren't experiencing as much pushback as we were here it's also a smaller city with not that much stuff happening <laughs> so there's a lot of media attention and how media was spinning this story created us a lot of problems in terms of public understanding their lack of like ability to present things in a context with a piece of education with it and just present a fact very much sensationalism focus that didn't help, so that was a little maybe I would say not s- surprising, but challenging to manage. And also like how much the system itself will really drain you, and like fighting the system constantly is what really took us like so much time in the day. But operating the service was fairly simple. We could have expanded the hours, even like the second week, if we didn't have to manage as much of like the pushback as we were managing, because we experienced a lot of it. And we were probably like, the worst city in terms of like how much push- pushback we experienced. So that was frustrating.
1: The group I work with in Portland, we also try and do need-based. We just don't have enough supplies to give as much as we'd like to. But every other group in the city works on a one-for-one. And we also been doing these mobile rides, and we've been finding that Neighbors are coming out against us. They're finding needles, and they say, you guys need to do one-for-one exchange. And finding them, I think they're kind of exchanging tactics and building cases. I wonder if you have any advice on how to deal with situations like that or with the neighbors and the neighbors that you had around the uh, overdose prevention site in Ottawa. Uh,
2: we've learned so much. I would say um, for sure I think what helped us is that our group, our volunteers, were really good at staying very professional and calm. And not engaging. So that was helpful in the sense of always being the bigger person in this situation where we're just like showing this level of professionalism and calmness despite whatever was coming our way. So that was a good strategy. On a few occasions, we brought in a mediator during days that we thought something might happen or we had experienced something the night before and wanting to be proactive. And so we would bring in a volunteer who's like an experienced mediator and is trained to deal with situations like that, de-escalation and things like that. Documenting, filming pictures if something happens so that, you know, there's like a record of the interactions. And referring people to the right places to go. So if, let's say, they weren't happy about us, well, say that to your city councillor, say that to public health or to the bylaws, but just kind of redirecting was um helpful and also trying to mobilize people to say well if you're not happy about us being here doing this work then this is what you need to push for so you need to push for these services to be accessible you need to push for housing you know only when all this is being dealt with that will not be required anymore you know we're here because we have to (laughs) and we're being forced to it's not the ideal scenario to be volunteering at a park every night trying to save lives like in the rain and the mud and you know just like situations that is really not ideal we can be doing better than that so just trying to like refocus and saying like we're here because we have to we could be doing more and we could be doing better so you need to push for this with us and yeah and just constantly recording like the impact of our service that helps When people are completely dismissing what you're doing, then you can say, actually, no, like last night we did this. Um, We intervened in this situation. We connected someone with detox because we did a lot of that, right? But people were so focused on like, wow, they're letting people use drugs. They didn't see that at times we were like the only source of support for people who are trying to access detox, which is really, really hard in the city.
1: What kind of logistics and supplies did you need to keep running this site?
2: For sure, you need naloxone. You need basic harm reduction supplies for sure you need some infrastructure like tents and tables and chairs public health provided all the harm reduction supplies to us and then naloxone we had a lot of this stuff donated like lighters and gloves and wipes you know to wipe the tables and chairs things like that you can do a lot with donations for these things but i would say minimally you need the harm reduction supplies the naloxone o2 saturation monitor oxygen is ideal Pocket math for rescue breeding these things, but really it's not. You don't need much uh, volunteer, and we were getting homemade food every night using Meal Train, as a site that people can register on and like say that, okay, for tomorrow I'm bringing the dinner for the volunteers. So we used a lot of the community and people who wanted to make a difference, maybe not by volunteering at the site, but wanted to feed our volunteers or bring snacks or water. We used a lot of donations for the rest.
0: What would your ideal safe injection site look like? And also what would your ideal changes to drug policy in Canada be?
2: That's a really good question. Uh, I would say my ideal scenario would be for supervised injection, supervised consumption to be done everywhere. And that's where I think this is the next step where we have to take this. We have to stop looking at these services being only provided in special, exceptional spaces that require all these planning and budgeting and renovations. Overdose prevention sites have shown that you can just set up a table and a chair and let's stay in a housing facility and say, hey, you guys, if any of you <laughs> inject opiates, ideally don't use alone. That would be the best recommendation. You can do it in on the first floor. Like you can do it in this room and someone will be around if, if you need help. Doing this in hospital and clinics, like in housing facilities, correctional facilities, trying to make this the standard as opposed to the exceptional measure that requires so much work. So it would be normalizing mainstreaming supervised consumption which is the way to go because a lot of people I know a lot of organizations clinics that would love to be able to say to their clients like by the way we offer this supervised service if ever you need to use you can use in this space and that's it end of story they don't have the capacity to engage in all this from a money or human resources and the ability to just gather all the the appropriate documents and apply for an exemption and then go through the inspections and follow all the protocols. It's just too heavy. It's too long. It's too complicated. So I would say mainstreaming and having that just integrated everywhere. And that the one thing that I would push for, for for Canada is to just decriminalize drug use, so detach the crime from the drug use. Um, that's where we need to go next. That's the only thing that will make a huge difference here. It's the biggest barrier for me as a nurse to do this kind of work. We're constantly trying to figure out how to provide essential life-saving healthcare services to people who really desperately need it, but just like constantly getting stuck in this idea that there's a crime attached to this remove the crime, recognize that this is a health issue and not medicalizing it. I'm not for that either, but it's just recognize that this is about health and well-being and treat it as such and just let us do our work. Let me do my job. That's the only thing nurses want in Canada is just to be able to work with people who use drugs in the same way that, you know, they work with all their other clients and not get constantly stuck in the fact that there's criminal aspect to drug use that makes the care really hard to provide or impossible sometimes
1: what is next for overdose prevention ottawa
2: and next week we'll we'll know more about this i have some ideas myself i know that we're very much uh, committed to doing more work around safer inhalation because we've seen so much of of it being done at our site and we want to have an impact at that level and then in terms of i think a lot of us still want to do some form of service provision the reality is it's really cold in ottawa right now so how do we do that how is it going to look it's going to be different from our pop-up site for sure but there's so many of us and our volunteers are still energized and committed i can't really give any details but i know for sure that this is not the end
0: Thanks to KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon for the studio.
1: And thanks to Mary Lou, who you should find on social media, which we will link to in the podcast description.
0: The intro music is by Povolition Division and is licensed for use by Creative Commons Non-Commercial License and made available from the Free Music Archive.
1: Outro music is by Monopole, which is also licensed for use by Creative Commons Non-Commercial License and made available from the Free Music Archive.
0: Thanks for listening.